If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 10 is where we are at this morning. John chapter 10. We're wrapping up um, the series, The Gospel According to John, The Invisible Made Visible, at least for the fall, uh, for, excuse me, for the spring, summer. We're going to take a break in the summer and then jump back into the Gospel According to John in September as we continue to go through the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, entitled The Invisible Made Visible. Um, but we are going to take a break, as you saw the slide, uh, next week and for the next eight weeks in a new series called Did God Really Say That? It'll be a fun time, we hope, this summer as we look at different cliches and comments and advice and really it's just plain old silly things that, yes, Christians say too many times if God himself were the author. Author. I think I said that right. Okay, the author. First up next week is, did God really say that he'll never give you more than you can handle? Did God really say that? No, he did not. But we're going to look at that. So come back next week. Uh, we're going to look at God. Did God really say it? And then we will look um, for the next eight weeks at different things like, you know, um, did God really say don't ever judge? Or, you know, when someone dies, God gains another angel. Such are some of the things and cliches that we hear people say that isn't, are not as necessarily in Scripture. So that's going to start next Sunday. So open your Bibles, John chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, number four, the gospel accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 10. We are picking up in verse 11 where we left off last week. I invite you there. There are Bibles in the back. We're going to dismiss the kids in a moment. You can grab a Bible and uh, please, if you don't have one, it's yours to keep. John chapter 10, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming. And he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, verse 19. There was again, happens a lot, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind man? May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So that's where we're at. Keep your Bibles there. If you need one, they're in the back. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church as we study together. This beautiful passage. It's, a, it's one of those scripture references that, you know, I don't know how many shepherds we got here. Maybe we got one or two. Um, I'm certainly not one as far as literally. Uh, but it's, a, it's one of those passages, I think, that we all really love and cling to. So let me just jump into this in a few minutes, uh, give you guys an up-to-date perspective of where we are in John 10. Now remember, John 10 goes back when we first saw Jesus going to the Feast of Tabernacle and Booth back in chapter 7. So from chapter 7 to chapter 10, verse 19 that we just read, is on the last day of this great feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus, during this feast, is very, very, very busy revealing himself as the um, fulfillment of the feast and, and really showing himself as the being the Messiah. Now, if you remember, that feast was to recall and to remember God's provision, God's care and provision for them while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years back in Exodus. The feast, though, pointed to Jesus, who is a greater and better provision, okay? So Jesus is seen as the true and better tabernacle, even though they built booths that they lived in temporarily for the week. Jesus is the one who tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true and better water, if you remember. 
Moses provided water, but God, of course, provided water through Moses. But Jesus is the true and better water. Anyone thirst, let him come to me. Jesus is the true and better light. He is the Shekinah glory cloud. He is the one uh, that God came down and, and you know, uh, in the Shekinah glory cloud and provided for them direction and, and protection as they were in the wilderness. Jesus is I'm the light of the world. And in that context that Jesus is light of the world, if you remember from chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. It's very important you see that for this morning's text. That Jesus in chapter 9 heals a man born blind. And because the man claims that Jesus is of God, that he is not a sinner, but as of God, the Pharisees and religious leaders treat him with contempt, and they give him the boot and excommunicate him from the community of God's people. Now, Jesus seeks after this man and finds him. We see a beautiful, at least a, a pre-setting of the shepherd love that Jesus has for people who are, are kicked to the curb, to say. And he reveals himself in John chapter 9, verse 35, as the Son of Man. Who Daniel speaks of in chapter 7 is this one who comes from the presence of the Ancient of Days, of God himself. He's given glory, dominion, and eternal kingdom. And it says in John, uh, excuse me, Daniel 7, that all the people and nations and languages worship this Son of Man. And in John 9, 38, that's exactly what this blind man does. Jesus reveals himself as the Son of Man, the one who comes from God, God himself. All people worship. In chapter 9, verse 38, the man falls on his face and he worships Jesus. The Pharisees are not happy, as usual. And they are saying to him, because Jesus says, judgment comes into the world, uh, just my presence will divide people. And they're like, are, are Are we blind? Are are you calling us blind, Jesus? Look at chapter 9, verse 40. Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So in other words, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, you guys think you have it all together, but you're really blind. And Jesus, in an act, I think, of love, goes into a story. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Into a familiar scene. It's almost to say, so you think that you can see. Well, let's see if you can see. And in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, Jesus launches into this familiar scene which, of which they were very familiar with. It reveals the shepherd who has sheep. Let me, you know what? Let's read it, really. Let, let's read it. I'm going to read it for you. John chapter 10. So Jesus... Heals a blind man, they kick him out. Jesus says, you're blind. And they're like, no, we're not really blind. Jesus like, yes, you are. And then he goes, chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, you think you're not blind? Let's see if you get this. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So there are people that climb in another way of the sheepfold. But the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep to him. He says, the gatekeeper opens the door. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. See the picture he's drawing? When he has brought them out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they won't listen to. They'll flee from the stranger for they don't know the voice of a stranger. Now last week, that's the picture I was looking for. If you were here, I couldn't find it on the slide. That's the sheepfold, small one, but that's a sheepfold. So they put briars on top of the brick, and the sheep at night would go into the sheepfold and rest there at night. Now, many times in Palestine, that sheepfold was a little bit bigger, and multiple families would share that. So you have four or five shepherds, different families at night. They would bring all their sheep into the sheep pen, and they would be in there. The shepherd and the, the, the families would hire someone as a gatekeeper would... Sometimes just literally stand in that doorway and just be there protecting the sheep so they don't wander away. No thieves and robbers take them. No wild animals come in and, and, and hurt the sheep. And he would be right in that center. And the shepherd would come in the morning and call his sheep. And they would hear the distinct voice. I showed a video last week. And follow the shepherd. And multiple, many times there would be three or four shepherds calling. And the sheep would actually come through the doorway because the gatekeeper would recognize the sheep, shepherd, 
and the sheep would actually divide and go to the proper shepherd. So the idea that they drive sheep like they do today with four-wheelers or horses and dogs is not the picture. The picture is the shepherd calls his sheep and leads them out, and they follow the shepherd into the places of, of, of pasturing and grazing, and he protects them and he watches them. He calls them by name. That's the picture that we see this morning, and that Jesus is showing them. And he says there are thieves and robbers that climb over the wall. And what Jesus is saying, and you need to see this, is that the people that Jesus is talking to, the religious leaders of that day, they were the thieves and robbers. Jesus was saying to them, you know, you excommunicated this man. You threw this man out. You're not loving, protecting, and caring for them, for him, as the shepherds of God are supposed to do. They are thieves and robbers, and Jesus was denunciating and, and, and calling them out on their bad shepherding, right? The shepherds are called to feed their flock, not beat their flock. And some shepherds are just brutalizing the sheep. And he says, you guys are the thieves and the robbers. The true shepherds go right in the door. They call their sheep. The sheep follow them. Oh, you need to see that this morning. Because in Ezekiel 34, we looked at this last week. We won't go into it today. God denunciates and, 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 and really calls out the false shepherds in Ezekiel 34. Look that up tomorrow or, or, or later on today. He calls out the false sheep, and then he says, which is really cool, that someday I will, God, Yahweh, I will be their personal shepherd. I will come and shepherd my people Israel. So make no mistake about it. When Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the door, and we'll see today, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus is making it very clear. They understand where he's getting that, Ezekiel 34, that he claims to be God himself shepherding God's people and that they are the false shepherds, the thieves and the robbers, and we see the hired hands today. And Jesus is contrasting him being the good shepherd to those who are bad shepherds. That's what this verse is all about. Last week, he is the door. He takes the story, door and sheep, walking in and out, calling them out. Last week, we looked at he is the door. This week, he is the good shepherd. Last week, as the door, we said that Jesus being the door means he's the only way of salvation. He provides salvation for his uh, sheep. He secures us. His flock, we got the door, we can go in and out, we have a safety, we have satisfaction. Chapter 10, verse 10 says there's a surplus, uh, just a surplus of grace. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the Jewish leaders of that day. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. What a beautiful picture of Jesus, the door. Now we get to verse 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. That is number five, if you've been counting, number five of Jesus declaring I am with a predicate. I am the bread of life was number one. I am the light of the world, number two. I am the door last week. This week, I am the good shepherd. So that's what we're looking at. And you needed to see this story, this picture that Jesus is painting for them to understand what he means by a door and what he means by a shepherd. So the first thing we're going to look at is this good shepherd's death. Then we'll look at the shepherd's determination, the shepherd's deity, and finally we'll look at the shepherd's division. We'll go into communion. We're having communion this morning because I think it's just a perfect passage to celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, the shepherd's death. Look at verse 11 with me. I am, he says, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He, who is a higher hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because why? He's a higher hand and cares nothing for the sheep. First thing you need to notice is that statement, I am again. I know I'm not going to belabor it. I keep mentioning it, but I think it's so important. I am the good shepherd. Greek word, ego am I. It's clear and unambiguous claim of Jesus, pointing back to Moses in Exodus 3. If you have a Bible and you like to write in your Bible, all those I am statements, put down Exodus 3. So when people come to you and say Jesus is not God, you can point to those passages because God made it very clear to Moses 
I am the God of Israel. I am is a statement meaning that he is without beginning and without end. And the last time I read my Bible, the only one who is eternal is God himself. Jesus says, I am. No beginning, no end. Self-sufficient, right? He is, he is uh, independent of anything. He is self-existent and eternal. I am the good shepherd. I am the one that Ezekiel spoke about. I am the one, the good shepherd that will come and shepherd Israel. The next word that's really important in this statement is the word good. So I am, going back to Moses, eternal one, I am the good shepherd, kalos is the word. It means worthy. It means noble. It means moral character. I am the good shepherd. Why? Because I lay down my life for the sheep. You see that? So it's not just worthy. It's just not noble. It's authentic. Genuine, if I can use that term. I am the good, genuine, authentic, good shepherd. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am a good shepherd. There were a lot of good shepherds, I'm sure. There were some bad ones. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Dr. Carson writes, the expression serves to identify him as the genuine, unique antitype with roots in eternity. So we have the type in the Old Testament, the shepherd, and now we have the antitype, which is Christ, who is the fulfillment the, in bodily form, God himself as the good shepherd. Look what he says. I am the good shepherd who does what? Lays down his life for his sheep. Now, let's think for a moment. Think this metaphor. We would realize, or at least in Jesus' day, any shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep leaves the sheep what? Vulnerable. Right? They're no good. Shepherds are no good to their sheep if they're dead. Right? They're vulnerable. They need someone. They're helpless. Right? That's what sheep are. That's what you and I are, by the way. Helpless and vulnerable and needy. The good shepherd, if he gave his life and he lays it, let's say, you know, in those days, there would be bears and lions. We see that in 1 Samuel. David strikes down this, 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 uh, this bear, uh, this lion, excuse me, and he, and he saves the sheepfold. Shepherds were called to fight for their sheep, and a good shepherd, a small g, a good shepherd would, would stand in the gap and defend his sheep. That was something that we were called, you know, expected of them. But no shepherd comes for the purpose of laying down his life. You see, Jesus is emphatic here. He's pushing this metaphor as far as it can go. He goes beyond the metaphor. He, 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 he doesn't simply risk his life. He lays it down. One may expect the shepherd to defend unto death, but no shepherd comes for the intention, for the purpose of laying down his life for the sheep. It's not, I'll protect you until death do us part, Right? It's far from being unintentional. Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. And I want you to see the contrast. Thieves and robbers hire hands. Those who are employed, who, who have monetary gain, to, that, to him who lays down his life for the sheep. One takes care of the sheep purely out of monetary compensation. But when the... When, when the Danger comes when, when the going gets tough. What do they do? They run. The hired hands like thieves and robbers in this, in this case are, are the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And by implication, all those who shepherd. Pastors. Same word. Maybe you shepherd your home. Maybe you're in leadership somewhere and God has given you the authority to care for people. Are we doing it simply for the money? Are we doing it because we care about people? These people, the only thing they cared about was self-interest and self-preservation. They do ministry not for the souls of men and women or even for love of the gospel, but for money. That's what he's talking about. They do it for money. John Calvin writes, He, the hired hand, cares not for the sheep, which means that his heart is not moved by the scattering of the flock. He's watching the flock scatter because he thinks that it does not belong at all to him. For he who looks to the hire and not to the flock will give proof of his treachery, end quote. 
The Apostle Peter picks up this idea of selfish shepherds and self-preservation, and he wants to flip it around and encourage the pastors, encourage the shepherds of God's people. And he writes this to the, to the under-shepherds. We'll call them under-shepherds because Jesus is the true shepherd. He writes this to the pastors. He says to them in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Peter, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as, we, as well as the partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He tells them this, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, not for money, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, now he's called Jesus, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I understand the church, particularly their pastors, are not perfect people. And there are some truly wonderful under-shepherds that care, feed, protect, and lovingly serve the flock. But I also know there are those that are very selfish, uncaring men who care more about power and rather protect their own skin than lovingly care for the people under them. I have to admit, and I gladly boast for a moment, for Pastor Ricky, Perry Jones, Scott Hannay, the two pastors in process, Chris Cajano is in, uh, becoming a pastor in process, my brother Bill, who's not, he must be teaching, Skiff, uh, who is in the process of becoming one of the pastor elders, hopefully with um, church vote. Love Jesus and love you. It is a joy. It is a joy to serve with these wonderful men who, like Jesus, shepherd you well. Pray for them. Pray for them. They're under attack all the time. Pray for me that we would shepherd you well. Jesus is giving us a contrast of those like him who sacrifice compared to the hired hand who are selfless, selfless. Because look at look what Jesus does. He's the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. If you have a marker or a pen, underline the word for. Jesus lays down his life for, circle that word, for, huper, H-Y-P-E-R in the Greek, for his sheep. The word for means sacrifice. Strongly suggests sacrifice. It is a preposition that John uses almost every single time in the New Testament or in this gospel account to talk about sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of man to die for his friends in John 15. So two things I want you to see before we move on. Number one, the shepherd sacrifices for his sheep. It is not that the shepherd wants to just show the sheep how much he loves them, although Jesus does love you. That's not the point in this passage. Jesus sees his helpless sheep that are in grave danger, and then he dies in their place, on their behalf, in their protection. The shepherd loses his life. That's why he came, to lay down his life, so that by his death, they are saved. That is why he's the good shepherd. He is selfless and dies on behalf of the sheep. Number two, very important, don't miss this. The word for is not only that he dies for them as a sacrifice, but it was voluntary. Very important you understand that. It was voluntary. Okay? We talk about here, if, if you never heard the word atonement before, we have a series online, I think it's five sermons, on the atonement. Atonement is an Anglo-Saxon word that means at one meant. Two things that have been separated and now brought together in harmony with each other. The atonement, listen family, the atonement is the heart of the gospel. The atonement is the heart of the gospel. You can see the sermons online. Let me just give you a, a short, full but short explanation of the atonement. Heart of the gospel. Okay, the atonement is, or the atonement can be explained as the work of God. It's the work of God. Who, by the sacrifice of his son on the cross, appeased the wrath of God we deserve by paying the debt for our sins. 
And because he paid the debt for our sins, there's an amends, there's a, there's a reconciliation, the separation and hostility that our sins deserve and our sins cause, the separation from God. And this allows God, therefore, to forgive us and to be reconciled to him. So that's the explanation. I know it's a big one. I could send it to you in email if you want it. Work of God by the sacrifice of his son on the cross appease the wrath of God we deserve by paying the debt for our sin and amends and reconciles the separation and hostility that our sins have caused and therefore allowing us, praise God, to receive God's pardoning grace. Family, you need to see this morning that it was deliberately done, intentionally and voluntarily. I'm reminded of an illustration. Uh, maybe some of you heard this before. I must admit, I've used this illustration before and it's not biblical, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm telling you right up front. So I'm going to use a negative for a positive, okay? Have you ever heard this story? If you've been in Christendom in any amount of time, you've ever heard a story about a na- man named John Griffith. Well, 1930s, maybe I'll tell you a little story a little more, you'll know. He's the controller of a huge railroad bridge in Mississippi. Maybe you heard the story, maybe you saw the video. It's it, it, this, this man brings his son to this railroad crossing, and he is the controller who lowers the bridge and opens the bridge. Anybody ever hear this story before? At all, ever? No? Yes? A couple people? Okay, so he brings his son, and his son is just so excited to be with dad. And he's lowering the bridge and opening the bridge, and he's showing his son around the controller, and, his, and, they, and the father and his son is just enjoying this together. It's a heart-wrenching story, i got to admit. So they go sit down on the bridge. The bridge is open. They're having lunch together. Time flies by, and next thing you know, he hears a whistle in the, in the long distance. He looks at his watch, and it's uh, 107. A passenger train coming from Memphis, 400 people on board. So he jumps up from his eating his, with his, lunch, his lunch with his son and runs to the control booth. And he's got to lower the bridge because this, tr- this train is moving. He's got to get it down. And as he's lowering the bridge, he looks down and he sees his son caught in the gears. Never heard this story? It's heart-wrenching. And he's got a blink of an eye to make a decision. Crush his son, save the 400 passengers. Or let them all perish, 400. So with tears down his eyes, he closes the drawbridge, crushing his only son. Train goes by, 400 people are saved. And look, that's what the father did. No. Great story. Heart-wrenching. Jesus' sacrifice was done willingly, not unwittingly. It's not like Jesus woke up one day and said, oh my word, what did I get myself into? Yes, the father sacrificed and allowed the sacrifice of his son. But his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth to die. He willingly, intentionally, voluntarily laid down his life for the sheep. It wasn't done in secret. It wasn't done by the father just in the blink of an eye. He had to get this done. He thought at the last second. Great story doesn't really portray the Lord Jesus Christ and the purpose he came. He came to lay down his life for the sheep. Peter said, this man Jesus handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's Acts chapter 2. God's set purpose and foreknowledge, the shepherd's death. Okay, number two, the good shepherd's determination. Look at me in the next verse, verse 14. Now, when I say the good shepherd's determination, I do not mean that Jesus was determined to die on the cross and we're not really sure if it's going to happen or not. What I mean by the determination is that Jesus went to the cross, he was determined to go to the cross, and nothing in all of creation, heaven or hell, was going to stop him from happening. Okay? That kind of determination. I'm determined to lose some weight. I'm not sure. Big difference. That's what I mean by determination. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. The verb in there is continuous. I know my sheep. Again, in stark contrast to the hired hands who run, runs away at any signs of danger in contrast to the deliverance that Jesus offers as the good shepherd. 
They run, I know my own. And look at the emphasis. The emphasis or the determination of the sacrificial intentionality of Jesus' death is grounded in what? Jesus' deep intimacy with his sheep. What should make you and I stop, and I did as I was studying this week, dead in our tracks, is that the intimacy that Jesus has with his sheep corresponds to the mutual knowledge and intimacy of the Father and the Son. Think about that. I know my own, my own know me, just as, verse 15, the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now the word to know, gnoskos, is not just cognitive, I have an idea. It's actually used in the Old Testament as sexual intimacy. It means to know personally, needs to know intimately. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. You know, there is a deep desire in all of us, part of the Imago Dei, I believe. There's a deep desire in all of us, coupled with fear, to be known, to, to be truly, truly known. Some of you have heard of uh, Jean-Paul uh, Sartre. He's a French, French philosopher. He's, a, he's an atheist. And he wrote a play and had to do with uh, basically hell is having other people around you. And he talks about this relationship between people. And he writes this. He says, shame is only the original feeling of having my being outside engaged in another being and as such without any defense, illuminated by the absolute light. Okay, let me, let me explain what he's saying. He's saying hell is the feeling of being naked, being exposed. Hell is when someone can look right through you and see your innermost thoughts and motives of your heart. Think about it just today if we put all your secret thoughts and motives on that screen right now. Kierkegaard, he's another philosopher. He says this, In every man there is something which to a certain degree prevents him from becoming perfectly transparent to himself. But he who cannot reveal himself cannot love. And he who cannot love is the most unhappy man of all. End quote. So deep in our hearts, this is what they're saying. And this is what I think Jesus is getting at. Deep within our hearts, if someone really knew my thoughts, if someone really knew me completely, it would not be good. We know that. And therefore, fear comes on us. We, and then we, we are fake. We are, we are playing the actress or the actor in life. But we know that's not good either. Dr. Tim Keller, we are desperately afraid of being known. And, on the other hand, we're desperately desiring to be known. End quote. All of us desire to be loved as we are. All of us desire to be accepted as we are. All of us want to be known with all our bumps and bruises and warts. There's a level of intimacy that we want to have, but there's also fear. But what if, family, what if, what if you and I can be truly, truly vulnerable? What if we can truly come to grips with brokenness of our lives, with helplessness in our lives, in the sinfulness of our lives, and still be okay? What if we can be honest and yet be known and loved anyway? That's what Jesus is saying as a good shepherd. He knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows the brokenness of your life. He knows you and he sees you vulnerable and naked. But he loves you and he died for you anyway. He said to Nathaniel, I've seen you under the, under the fig tree. Remember that back in John 1. And Nathaniel's like, you don't know me. And she's like, I know you. And he said, you are the son of God. And we don't know what exactly what it was, but it was something that kind of freaked them out. Do you remember when Jesus, after he was buried... On Sunday morning, Mary runs to the tomb. She thinks it's a gardener. And she says, basically, where have you kept them? And, and Jesus turns to her, and what does he say? Mary. He calls her by name. Her eyes opened, and she recognized it was Jesus. He called her by name. Nathaniel and Mary knew that Jesus is the good shepherd who knows them by name. He lays down his life. Our nakedness, our brokenness is covered by his beauty and his righteousness. 
at the end of the time, the Bible said that the bride will be presented to the bridegroom and we will be adorned. Not in our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, because he lays down his life for his sheep, covers us with his perfect record. And the strength of that Being known, as I said a moment ago, is look what it says. I know you as the Father knows me. The sheep know me. I know the sheep just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Stop there for a moment. Think about the implication right there. Think about that. How does the Father know the Son? The Father delights in the Son. The Son and the Father are glorifying each other from all eternity. The Father in all his fullness blesses the Son. The Son in all... All that he does and says follows the Father, obeys the Father, follows everything he says and does, Jesus does. And Jesus has the boldness to say, if you receive me as Savior, if you follow me as the good shepherd, the Father will know you as he knows me. Family, revel in that beauty this morning. Stop for a moment and think about that. Revel in the fact that we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of His Son. All the affections the Father has on His Son, He has for those who are His. That's a beautiful, glorious truth. Nothing hidden from His sight. He knows you more than you know yourself, and He loves you anyway. He died not only as a substitute, but He voluntarily laid down His life, even though He knows us so well. It was not only voluntary, but look at it was, it was purposeful. Look at verse 15, what some people call a particular. Verse 15, look what he says. He, Jesus, laid down his life, what? For the sheep. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them too. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The sheep here are those whom the Father, we saw this earlier in John, the Father gave to the Son, John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I love that. All that the Father has given me will come to me, Jesus said. And who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Drop your eyes down at chapter 10, verse 26. Chapter 10, verse 26. But you do not believe, he's talking to the Pharisees. Because why? You are not among my sheep. You do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. He doesn't say you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He turns it around. He says you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You see, the determining factor is whether or not you belong to Jesus. The Bible says that he did not fail his mission, that he died on behalf of his sheep. Now, some people look at that and they misunderstand it, saying, well, if Jesus came and died for a sheep, then the gospel shouldn't go out to all people. That's wrong. That is a bad interpretation of Scripture. John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sins of the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the sheep. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 1, 1 John 1 Two says that Jesus is the atonement for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. So in one sense, Jesus comes and secures salvation for the sheep who Paul says were given to him before the foundation of the world. But in another sense, his death on the cross is sufficient to cover everyone's sin. That should motivate us to preach the gospel. That should motivate us to demonstrate and declare the gospel. That we can say to every single soul we meet, and I hope we're doing it, sharing our faith in Christ that God loves them and that God died for them. Every single soul. A lot of people, if you, if you're, you, know, if you read anything on limited atonement, unlimited atonement, that kind of stuff, I think the scripture is somewhat clear. Jesus' death in one sense was efficacious. In other words, effectual and successful for dying for his sheep on one hand, and yet it was sufficient for the whole world so the gospel can be declared to every single person with authenticity, clarity, 
and genuineness to come. Hear the voice of Jesus. Now look, in verse 16, it's not simply just the Jewish people, because that's up to now, that's what he's talking about. The Jewish people, the fold, the flock. He says, there's another flock. There's another fold. There are more, excuse me, there are one flock, one shepherd, but there are different sheep. There's Israel, and then look what he says. I have other sheep. He's talking about the Gentiles. Remember the context. There are a lot of cults out there. I want you to drink Kool-Aid and wear, you know, uh, coins in your pocket waiting for the halibob or whatever they call that thing that was coming, okay? They are. It's easy for a cult to say, Jesus said, the sheep, that's God's people, and the other sheep, that's us, but don't tell nobody. Hey, drink this Kool-Aid. That's what they do. The context is clear. Jews, non-Jews. Jesus saying, when I die, when I rise, the gospel will go out to all people, all nations, all tongues. We saw it in Acts. The gospel is for one shepherd, one sheep, both Jew and Gentile, one people. It is so crystal clear in Galatians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you and then we'll move on. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Listen, listen, Listen to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's non-Jew, so if you're here, you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcised, that has to do with the covenant promises, which was made in the flesh, the circumcision made in the flesh. Remember that you were at time separated from Christ. You were at once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promise that was given to Israel having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, now, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the wall by his flesh that was once hostile. He did it by abolishing the law of commandments, and that he might create in himself... Jesus might create in himself, that's the church, one new man in place of two, making peace. He reconciled us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The glory of the church is different cultures, different people, different nations. Revelation 5 says there'll be all tongue, different tongues, tribes, and nations worshiping the Lord. And that's the beauty and diversity of the church, the shepherd's deity. Look at verse 17. So you have the, the, his death, his determination, bringing the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life for the sheep and take it up again. It's not that God didn't love them before that, but it's eternally linked together. Okay? No one takes my life. Look at verse 18. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Think, family, think. It's one thing to say, I'm going to jump in front of the train and take my life. It's another thing to say, I'm going to jump in front of the train and take my life. Give me three days and I'll be back. Anybody could do that? Not me. Jesus is talking about his resurrection. Now, now in the scriptures, the, the Bible is very clear that God the Father and God the Son were involved in the resurrection. So if you know on ah, the Bible, it talks about, in Romans 8, it talks about the Spirit of God rising Jesus from the dead. All throughout the Old Testament, it placed in the New Testament, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Listen, it's the work of God. That's why we believe in the Trinity, one God and three persons. The Bible says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And the Bible says right here that Jesus himself has the authority to raise himself from the dead. One God, three persons. It is the work of the Trinity. And the fact that he could say that and do that demonstrates clearly of his deity. Who says, I'm going to die and give me three days and I'll see you again? And then lays down his life and comes back. I'll tell you who, God does that. So it teaches us a couple things. One, only God gives life. Only God gives life. I mean, Jesus showed all kinds of evidences of his deity, but the fact that he can give his life and take his life and then take it back again shows clearly that he is God. Number two, think this through, family. If this is true, and I believe it to be true, this is exactly what happened. If Jesus can, by his own authority, 
raise himself from the dead, that means that we are guaranteed, what he's talking about as sheep here, that we have salvation in his name, we are safe in his name, we are satisfied with the good shepherd, and, and there's a never-ending supply of grace. Anyone who says, I lay down my life, I take it up again. You are secured in what he says. And finally, the resurrection means, if Jesus can lay down his life and take it up again, it means that we have redemption in his name. Our salvation has been secured and we have victory over sin. Sin has been paid for. We have victory over death. We will not die. We will be with him in all eternity. He's the promised one. Spoken about it to David that he'll have a son with an eternal kingdom. His tomb is empty. No one takes my life. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. And that's exactly what he does. You know, Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning, let me just speak to you for a moment. If you're here this morning and you're still not buying it, you're still not a follower of Christ yet. You still have not submitted to Christ, have not repented of your sin, and trusted him as Lord and Savior. Listen, he is either crazy, foolish, irrelevant. He's king of kings and lord of lords. No one could just lay down their life and take it up again. And yet three days later, the tomb is empty, seen by 500 people plus, and for 2,000 years, we're worshiping him. That's the truth of Scripture. And you know what happens? Maybe that's where you're at today. There's division. With this, we'll go to communion. Look what it says. Verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews. Because of what they said. Many of them said, he is a demon. He's insane. He's crazy. Why listen to him? Others said, well, I don't know. (laughs) All right, that's added, but that's that's what they're saying. These, These are not the words of someone who's oppressed by a demon. I mean, can a demon open the eyes of what? The blind. We're going back to the man who's blind. I mean, can, can, can a demon do that? And you see there's, there's these people who just refuse to believe. No matter what, I'm not coming. I, I, he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's demoniac. And, and we're not going to trust him. Then there's another group over here. They're not expressing faith in Jesus, but they're like, ah. I mean, that guy was blind since birth. He can clearly see now how many fingers I got up, right? I mean, something happened. And maybe that's where you're at today. Something's going on. I, I keep hearing the voice of Christ. I, 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 I need to just make that decision. Maybe it's this morning. And saying, you are the good shepherd. You did lay your, down your life for me. And worship Jesus as this man who was born blind, who could now see, who hears the voice of the shepherd and follows him. That's where I hope you're at this morning. John chapter 20 says the reason why he wrote this story Chapter 20, verse 31, so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, of the same nature. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you believe this morning in the Good Shepherd? Do you believe that he laid down his life so that you can become part of his fold? You can become part of his flock? Do you hear his voice, his cross, his death, his resurrection is sufficient For you, he died for your sins. I say that without any hesitancy. Come to Jesus. And communion is about coming to Jesus. It is about remembering the work of atonement. It's not just the bread that's there that represents his body. The cup represents the blood that was shed. It's not just simply a memorial. It is truly by the power of the Holy Spirit, a call of Jesus to come to the table, to partake of the bread, to partake of the cup, remembering his death, remembering the blood that was shed, for there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, the Bible says. So here at King's Chapel, what we like to do on Communion Sundays is we have the band play. They're going to play some music. They're going to give us a chance to confess our sins, a chance to repent of our sins. And then when we're done confessing, we're done repenting, we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take the piece of bread, we take the cup, and we remember his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us. Maybe today is the first day for you to confess your sins to the Good Shepherd. He knows it already. And believe on him who went to the cross, laid down his life, so that you can have life. And there's one last thing. I think this is, I just want to end with this thought. 
This wonderful paradox truth. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life. But let me tell you something. Jesus is also a sheep. He was a sheep that was slain. It's amazing. Isaiah says Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That we, he, Jesus, was oppressed. He was afflicted. And Isaiah says 800 years before Christ came, yet he, that's Jesus, opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter. That's Jesus. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silenced, so he did not open his mouth. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross as a sheep is led to the slaughter. He lived among us, he identified with us as sheep yet without sin and lays down his life, his perfect life, his sacrificial death for our redemption. Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought us again from the dead, our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good that you may do to do his will according in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice, the willingness, the voluntary laying down your life for your sheep. Lord, you have many here that are your sheep. There are some here that hear your voice now and will become part of your fold. Father, we pray, Lord, your spirit would go out mightily and convince and convict us all of our sin that we may repent of that and then trust in you, rejoice in you that you laid down your life for us. Father, may we worship you. May you get all the glory and fame and honor belong to you and to you alone. Thank you, Jesus, for the life you gave so that we can have life eternal. And Father, as we take communion right now, we pray that you would stir our hearts to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.